0: versus being back there. Oh, they fun. It's good. James chapter 2. We've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump right in. We began this section of James 2 last Sunday. We began in verse 14 and uh, we're looking at this entire section that runs to the end of the chapter. So let's read uh, again the section we looked at last week where James says verse 14 what good is it my brothers and sisters If someone claims to have faith but does not have works, can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and likes daily food, or one of you says to them, Go and be, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. So your faith without works, and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. We've been in this series in James uh, for the last few months, and if you're new at the crossing, this is what we typically do, is walk through books of the Bible and just take it verse by verse, trusting that God will help us understand what He has said and what He is saying to us today. Because His word is alive and active And it's constantly making us new people It's constantly making us new creations in Christ And growing and maturing followers of Christ and So we believe when we open the word every single Sunday That the Holy Spirit and the power of God's word Do this work in us And maybe for some, it's salvation Because that can happen at any moment, anytime. time But for all of us, it's repentance And it's trust, and it's faith, and it's encouragement it's conviction is challenge, and so we trust that that's what the Spirit is going to do through the living, breathing Word of God today in our midst. And asking God, as James prayed, that we would have ears to hear. And we saw last week that James is contrasting in this section those who have a faith that is alive it shows up in works, and those who have a faith that is dead. And we learned that dead faith is faith that doesn't show up in works, and thus that kind of faith is worthless. James says repeatedly throughout this section. James has already clearly established he believes that true faith is given to us by God, it is the work that God does in us, and we respond to that by humbly receiving the implanted word, the good work he's doing in us. We saw this in uh, chapter 1, verse 18 and verse 21, we've, we've covered that before, but now this faith will rightly lead to genuine action. Not expressing simple human anger, for example, we looked at in chapter 1. Not being overcome by moral filth or prevalent evil. Being doers of the word, not hearers only. Taking care of widows and orphans. Watching your speech. Not showing favoritism over the rich, over the poor. Loving your neighbor as yourself. James seems to be dealing with a church that is struggling to see the importance of obedience to God's commands. There seems to be some in the church, or maybe a voice influencing the church, who's making much of faith... Oh yeah, we're Christians, we have faith in Jesus, but not faith that results in works. Now last week we also saw two examples of dead faith, faith that does not love in action, but only words. So someone comes, a brother or sister, and Christ comes, hey, I have needs, I'm struggling to eat, I'm struggling for a place to live, I'm struggling for clothes. And if you respond to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, I hope it works out for you, God will provide, and not actually help them have food, clothing, and shelter. James says, you have a faith that is not alive. You have a faith that is dead. The other kind of negative example of faith that we saw was a faith that is intellectual only. So you just check some boxes in your mind about what you believe, but it doesn't affect how you live. James calls that demonic faith. It's faith that can pass a theological test but doesn't worship and love God. Today, we're going to look at two examples of genuine faith, positive examples that will help us understand more what our faith can and will look like as we follow Jesus, and the first thing we see, real faith that is willing to sacrifice. Real faith that is willing to sacrifice. Verse twenty. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active. Uh, faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Father, we ask you again to bless this time in your word. We trust you with every heart and soul that's in this room or that's listening online. God, you created them in your image. You know them. You love them. You have desires for them to know you and love you and you are at work. We trust that, that us being together right now is not happenstance or luck or coincidence but it is in your providential will so that we who have ears to hear, we hear what you have for us today. and We receive what you have for us and we would bring it into our heart and soul and be changed as we obey and believe. And so do that work and we need it we need to be transformed by your word and by your spirit. So bless this time, Father. We pray for other churches in our area who are worshiping Jesus right now proclaiming the gospel that you bless their gatherings. Churches that we love and work with well and Watchtower Presbyterian and North Hills and, and, and others, God. All this chapel, God, bless them, bless their work, do good things. First we God, change lives as the gospel is proclaimed in all those places. We need the move of Jesus in city. We need our city transformed by Jesus. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James begins this section by reiterating the point he keeps making, faith without works is dead, and he offers up to them the greatest example of faith that they would have understood, their father, our father, Abraham. For the Jew, this was the pinnacle of faith, the best example. And then James says, wasn't he justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? Well let's let's think through that story again, to find some terms and deal with what on the surface seems to be a very difficult teaching to our faith. Abraham, of course, called by God from among the pagan people of the land in which he lived to follow God to a new land, the land that God would give him, and in this land God would bless him, make him a huge family, make him a numerous people that would fill the earth. And eventually the entire earth will be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. The promise of God for him to be a father though was delayed for years. And in Genesis 15, Abraham was visited by God in a dream, encouraged by God, but Abraham responds by saying, well, I'm still childless. How can all these promises be true and I have no children? Month after month, me and Sarah are coming together, believing what you said, even though we're old, we're going to have a child and month after month we wonder how much longer how much longer we know God promised this but why is it taking so long are we we doing something wrong are we not trusting who knows what they were thinking Romans 4 talks about this as Abraham and Sarah hoping against hope believing and trusting even though it's not showing up and God brings Abraham in Genesis 15 out to the night sky and he shows him all the stars that could be seen now for us who live with light pollution and air pollution, we don't really know what stars are out there. Unless you look at the new telescope that's out space doing instant, or you look up images online, or you go somewhere out in the wilderness. Go to Seeker Springs, right? But look up images of the night sky in a place like the desert where there really is no air pollution or light pollution. And you see what Abraham saw. It's mind-blowing. And God shows him this array of stars that could not be counted and said, I promise you it's going to happen. Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And Genesis 15 says, 15-6 says, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. God put in his spiritual bank account this credit of, you are righteous because you believe me. And this is what James quotes in verse 23 of chapter 2. Now fast forward a few years, Abraham finally does have this promised son, Isaac. And one day, when Isaac was at least a teenager, maybe older, God tells Abraham to go to a mountain in the land of Moriah and offer his only son, his son of promise, on the mountain as a sacrifice. Now, this was a unique request. This was not part of the law. The law hadn't been written yet, but it would not be part of God's Old Testament commands. In fact, child sacrifice was condemned by God in the law. This was not a request you see God repeating to anyone else. It's so unusual, some people are uncomfortable with it, they try and help the Bible out and come up with explanations. Well, Abraham thought God said that, and then God had to bail him out. What we do know, besides speculation, is true, is that the opening verses of Genesis 2-1 tells us God was testing Abraham's faith. What we also know is Abraham really had faith in God. He knew what God asked, he knew what God wanted, and he knew that God was going to provide. In Genesis 22, 5, Abraham said to the men traveling with them, Abraham said to his young, young men, Stay here with the donkey, the boy and I, Isaac, will go over there to worship, then we'll come back to you. We find out later in Hebrews 11 that Abraham assumed... If I offer my son Isaac as a burnt offering, God would just raise him from the dead. Abraham's faith was so settled in God's provision, he figured, if I do this, I'm going to see something I've never seen or heard of, a resurrection. That's how certain I am that God will keep His promises. He promised me a son, the son of promise. We tried for 25 years to have this son before we did all the promises that God's given me have hinged on him and he's not, the end result of this episode on this mountain of Moriah, the end result is not going to be Isaac's death. Even though I have to kill him. Can you imagine that kind of faith in God's promises is so certain, so strong. Just as he's about to plunge his knife into his son, verse 12, then he said, do not, the angel says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him For for now, I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and he went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt it offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. So today, it said, "It will be provided in the Lord's mountain." Now, this is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament to the Jewish people, and it's the background of what James is saying. But what exactly is he saying? Because if we're not careful, it seems like James is saying Abraham wasn't credited with righteousness when he believed in chapter 15 of Genesis, but only when he offered his son Isaac in chapter 22 of Genesis. But James quotes Genesis 15:6, so that can't be it. So what is James saying? Well, let's define a few terms that are essential to understanding this and and how we can see how James and the Apostle Paul are not contradicting each other. We've already seen two definitions for faith in this section. There is genuine faith that shows up in works, and there is false faith that is shown to be false because it does not show up in works. It's just religion. It's intellectual only, words only, not, not action. We also have to grasp the two different definitions of works. The Bible speaks of works that are the result of genuine faith, good works, good things that we do because we've been changed by Jesus, but the Bible also speaks of works that are done out of the flesh, works of the flesh, selfishness, sin, manipulating people, gossip, slander, uh, all kinds of sins that come out of the flesh, sexual immorality, hurting people, And these works, and then then there are also works that look good, but might not be good. For example, in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about praying, giving, and fasting. Two groups of people were both doing these three seemingly good things, praying, giving, and fasting. But the religious hypocrites were praying, giving, and fasting in order to be seen as good people and be applauded by people. And Jesus says if that's the only reason you do the good things you do is for people to applaud you and to think you're such a holy person, God does not honor that or enjoy that. And then that's the only reward you'll get. You'll get the applause of people but not the applause of your Father If you really haven't changed by Jesus, if you really love God, you'll do the good things like praying, giving, and fasting, but you'll do them in secret. So only your Father knows and only He can applaud you it's just for your intimacy and your enjoyment of Him. Now that doesn't mean we don't also pray, give, and fast in public. We can and do, but if you're doing it in public and not in secret, there's a very dangerous possibility you're just a hypocrite. You're just doing it because people expect you to do it. I'm here today because I want people to think I'm a good person. I'm in church on Sunday. I don't want one of those elders to hunt me down and pester me with text messages. Where have you been? What's going on? So what you do the secret with your father alone must also, can also be done in public, but it has to be done in secret if it's real, if it's genuine, if it's truly coming from a heart that's been changed by Jesus and the gospel. So that's another kind of work the Bible describes. Now, another definition, another type of group of words we need to, to define and grasp is the word justification. Maybe the most important distinction of this passage And where Luther was tempted to dismiss James Because he thought what James was saying contradicted Paul Paul says in Romans 3.28 We conclude that a person is justified by faith Apart from the works of the law And then James says in 2.24 You see that a person is justified by works And not by faith alone oh What are we going to do with this? What is it? It's hugely important. It totally flips the gospel in its head if you get this wrong. Justification can mean you are made right. You are just. Paul and James both say this happened for Abraham when he believed God. Abraham was credited with righteousness. Abraham had an account with God and applied to his account was this declaration you are right. You are just, you are righteous in my eyes because you have faith in me Genesis 15. Now this is about 30 years before he offered his son Isaac in Genesis 12. Justify can mean to make something right. Justify can also mean prove something is right. They're totally different. If someone takes a position, let's say... Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Seems to be going downhill <laughs> Amen Jar yeah. Jar Binks is the worst character in Star Wars history okay. uh, Chick-fil-A Should be open on Sundays For God's people to worship Jesus And then eat God's food If that's your position You believe it's right Someone can say justify that Now You have to not make it right You believe it's right But prove it's right how do you prove something is right if you declared it right? With evidence. With evidence. You see a similar distinction in the word righteousness. The Bible speaks of positional righteousness like Abraham in Genesis 15. He believed God and was credited with being righteous. on so in God's eyes, Abraham had a secure position of being righteous. We also, also had practical righteousness. Right and good things we do that show we are right and good. Which is more of what James is saying throughout this section. If you are righteous positionally in God's eyes, you will practically do righteous works. If you are justified by faith long, with genuine faith, then you will justify or prove that genuine faith through evidence, works. That work along with faith proves you have a right standing with God. Now, an even better way to see how Paul and James work together is not that they are in face-to-face conflict, but that they are back-to-back facing two different enemies, dealing with two different problems in the church. Paul was constantly dealing with a crowd that claimed that they were righteous because they were Jewish. They had been circumcised. They had obeyed the law. They had followed the commands, ate the code for diet, practiced the religious feasts, kept the Sabbath. This was so important to the Jewish Christian mindset that when Gentiles started being saved in Acts 10 and, and after coming into the church, the Jewish Christians were saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! They haven't no been circumcised. They're eating meat offered to idols. They're they're doing some of these things that you're not supposed to do." And so in Acts 15, you have this council to decide well, how should we do this? How should we deal with this? And it was all decided that those the Jewish part of Christianity needed to be done away with. So that Christianity could be distinct from Judaism. Christianity would always be rooted in Judaism, but it would have to be distinct from Judaism. So Paul is constantly in Romans saying, no, we are saved by faith alone, apart from obeying the Old Testament law. You don't have to be circumcised or wear certain clothing or keep the Sabbath like y'all have done for years. They can eat meat offered to Iowa, provided that you're not causing a, a weaker brother to stumble. You could say Paul was dealing with legalism, which are, we are made right by following rules. James was dealing with a problem called antinomianism. Nomos are law. They are anti-law against law. In other words, the people James dealt with believed that obedience wasn't essential. The law, commands of God still in effect, that he's already given examples of, caring for widows and orphans, not showing favoritism, those commands still matter if you say you have faith but there's no evidence in how you live your life. Your faith, James would say, is not genuine faith, but dead faith and worthless. God saw Abraham's real faith in Genesis 15. But when he was willing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, knowing they would both return because God, is, if so choose, could raise his son from the dead, that's when the Lord said, Now I know you. You've proven that your faith is indeed genuine, that you've been professing all along. So, with these definitions in mind, let's go back and look at the text again. James verse 2, verse 20. Since this person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Again, describing dead, useless faith. Verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works and offering Isaac his son on the altar? Did not Abraham justify or prove or show the evidence of his real genuine faith that he first professed in Genesis 15 by being willing to offer his son in Genesis 22 as a sacrifice, showing how much he trusted in God to provide? Verse 22, you see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. Genuine faith was working with good, genuine fruit, of the genuine faith, or works showing his faith, was complete, which means mature, the real deal. In other words, Abraham didn't just have a verbal declaration of faith to show his faith was mature. He had a verbal declaration and genuine works. He proved his faith was real through his works. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. A person is shown to be just and righteous in God's eyes by good, genuine works that flow from genuine faith and not by, not justified by false faith, faith alone, without works, which is false because it's not accompanied by works, but it's only head faith. Real faith is willing to sacrifice, and those sacrifices are evidence that faith is real because you're willing to sacrifice. And God's not going to ask you to sacrifice one of your kids on the altar as a burnt sacrifice. I can promise you, if you ever wake up and you think God's telling you that, you can automatically dismiss that as really bad, nice you had the night before. Or just a bad show you shouldn't have watched on Netflix, whatever. He's not going to ask us to literally sacrifice our kids, but, but we will have to sacrifice the priority of our kids in our life to follow Jesus. Their, their needs aren't really the most important needs in your family. I hate to tell you. Now, they're going to scream and kick and spit and rant and keep demanding, I'm the center of the universe, mom and dad. Make your whole life, make our whole family all about me. And you have to keep reminding them. No, you're not. In fact, our marriage is more important even as a priority over the kids. Because the kids ain't always going to be there. So you got to invest in your marriage you got to care for the kids and teach them well, but you're going to kick them out one day. Because they've got to go into the world and, and follow Jesus and create their own story for what that looks like for them. So, just some examples of what that looks like practically. But it causes to sacrifice. Secondly, the, the second example we see is that real faith is willing to risk. Verse 25. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works and receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, if Abraham was the pinnacle of their faith in the Old Testament, he could have chose no better example. Rahab was the story in your family's history that you want to keep in the dark. Shh. We don't want to tell remember Rahab. She was a Yet, in light of how James opened this chapter, don't show favoritism of the rich over the poor, he cannot have chosen two more perfect examples of both the great patriarch and the pagan prostitute, how they both deserve our love and affection. Because the gospel is for both. We have to show love and affection and share the gospel with the rich and the powerful and the well-to-do, and we have to show love and the affection of the gospel with those who aren't. And this is for everyone can't favor one over the other. You read about Rahab and Joshua 2. God had delivered His people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He had brought them to Mount Sinai to establish this new covenant relationship with them. He had given them the law. Here's how you live in this new land as my people. In the land of promise. He brought them to the edge of the land. They sent in spies. The spies came back and said, we can't take it. The big people are too big, too powerful. We can't defeat them. Despite the fact God had delivered them from Egypt one of the most powerful empires on earth at the time through miraculous plagues and signs and wonders, despite the fact that God delivered them from the Egyptian army by bringing them through the Red Sea on dry ground, despite how God showed up in power and might at Mount Sinai, when they get to the edge of the land of promise, the spies says, too much. That God over there is not the God that's going to go with us in there. We can't be them. So God says, okay, that wilderness, that generation will wander around the wilderness and die out in 40 years later, We'll be ready to bring in the next generation, led not by Moses, but Joshua. And Joshua opens with them crossing another river on dry ground, the Jordan River. They come to their first city to conquer Jericho, and they wonder, can we conquer it? So Joshua sends in two spies to check it out. Rahab was a prostitute whose house was built into the walls of the city, which gave her easy access for potential clients, but also it was an easy house for these two spies to stay in without arousing suspicion. It didn't work. Word spread, she's harboring two spies. The king says, bring them out. She says, yes, they did come to my house. I didn't know who they were. So I sent them on their way. They're running down the road. If you hurry, you could probably catch them. So the king and his men ran after those ghosts because in actuality, she had hid them on her roof. And that's where we pick the story up in Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord. Let me see in the Old Testament, you read in your Bible. you see L-O-R-D in all caps. That is the covenantal name of God, Yahweh. I know that the Lord, he's just talking about one specific God, Yahweh, has given you this land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us. And everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Nod, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me, by the Lord, that you will also show kindness to my father's family, because I show kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them, and save us from death. If Rahab had been caught in this treasonous act, she would have been killed. But she believed. Greatness of this God who is working through His people, who is bringing them into this land, and she wanted to be a part of that community. So she helped them escape. And the spies kept their promise and instructed her: tie this scarlet red cord around your window, so that in a similar way, the angel of death passed over the houses covered by the red blood of the lamb in Egypt on the first Passover. When the armies attack, they will see the red cord in your window, and it will mean life and salvation for you. And Rahab heard the stories of God's might in his people. She believed the stories were true and their God was the one true most high God. And she demonstrated her faith was real and how she helped the spies. Her faith was not dead faith without works, but living faith shown by works. Paul wrote to the person when faced with the gospel says, I'll never be good enough. My life is a mess. I can't measure up. I have no good works. I've never been part of a church. How can I be saved? I'm too messy. And Paul would say, you don't have to do to be saved. You believe in Jesus who has done everything. And you can be saved. And James writes to the professing Christian who says, sure, I'm a Christian. Of course I am. Look at me. I know what I believe. Me and Jesus, we have our own relationship. I have him on speed dial. I mean, he's there. And James would say, show me the evidence that Jesus really lives in you. What good fruit has shown up in your life because of your faith in Jesus? Church, do you see how both of these people live and in all perish? The person who will never think they're good enough to be saved, and the person who thinks, of course I'm a Christian, look how good I am. Look at my faith. And both of them need the gospel. The gospel is for Rahab the prostitute whose life is not the life you would imagine would matter. She's a pagan. She's a prostitute. This great army with this great God is coming. We're all going to die. But God sees her and sees her faith and sends his spies so she not only can be spared, but she can be brought into the community of God's people. She is saved, her family is saved. She becomes a wife, no longer a prostitute. And she has a son named Boaz. If you know the Bible, you know that is important in the story of Ruth. Ruth, another pagan woman outside of God's people, unworthy in the eyes of the self-righteous and cursed even because of all the death in her family. Ruth brought into the community of God's people pursued and married to Boaz, and they had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, but a son named David, King David. Both Rahab and Ruth were the lowest of the lowest in society, a prostitute and a widow, both unworthy, seemingly, of God's grace and love. They had just been cursed. How can they be saved? How in the world can they get in on this? They'll never measure up. Who will even notice them? But both were seen by God. And both were not only brought into the community of God's people, but they became ancestors of Jesus himself. They were grafted into the line of Christ. So we know today, this salvation is for everyone. No one is too far down or too far gone that Jesus can't see you, find you, save you, and bring you back. It's available. It's here. It's living. It's active. It's for you. Your life is never too messy for Him. You're never too far gone beyond His love and the reach of His power to change you and make you a part of His people. The gospel is for Rahab. The gospel is for Abraham, the patriarch, the great man, chosen and given all the privileges of this unique and special relationship with God. Yet he had to know: Is this real? He could just rely on the dreams and visions or the special place he occupied as God's chosen one to be the initiator of the special people who would lead to Jesus. Certainly, he could have become super proud and arrogant about his status, his position, his power, his prominence, that Abraham needed something more. And James tells us what he found in James 2.23. scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Abraham needed a friend. He needed intimacy with God. His position, his privilege, his power, none of that would really satisfy the ache in his soul for intimacy and friendship with God. There was no law or ten commandments telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. God told him. And when he's willing to obey God, God knew he really does love me. And Abraham did. He really does love you too. Because he's provided. He's provided a sacrifice. And in Genesis, Genesis 15 on Mount Moriah, God and Abraham became friends. Their bond of love and intimacy forged by the trial of trust and sacrifice. Interestingly, where Abraham was told to sacrifice his son, Mount Moriah, was the same exact place where a city will be built years later the city of Jerusalem. Same place. And on a hill outside of Jerusalem, another father laid his son to be sacrificed. But this time the blade would not be stopped. And when Jesus lovingly, willingly gave himself for our sins, he created a way for the Rahabs and the Abrahams to enter into an intimate relationship with friendship. We have a culture, maybe even a church Filled with people who can pass Theological tests We have professions of faith that we're Christians We show up in places like this week after week But Brother and sister Is God your friend? Is God your friend? Do you live In a friendly relationship With the God who created you With your father in heaven? When you consider all that God's done for us through His Son, Jesus, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, to live in us, really, what greater friend could you have? Think of your human friends. We all have human friends. They're great, fun, awesome. We have a good time. We share the good, the bad, the ugly. But they let us down. We all do. We accidentally and sometimes intentionally hurt each other. We're imperfect. We don't love perfect be ostracized, and you, even with your best friends, come to a point in time you feel hurt, by the people who are supposed to love you the most. What greater friend could you have than God, who will love you forever and never kick you away, never turn His back on you, even when you mess up, He doesn't withdraw, but actually comes closer to love you in deeper and more profound ways and to help more, like nothing you've done or do will ever repulse him as your friend. Even our self-righteous arrogance, he comes close to help us see it and change, all within the confines of a loving friendship. We live in a city and a parish with thousands of people not experiencing intimate friendship with the God who made them, struggling, suffering, hurting, and out of that struggle, suffering, hurt, they're hurting themselves and they're hurting others. I attended a funeral yesterday for a 23-year-old young man who was senselessly shot a couple weeks ago. I see his mom as a chaplain at one of the workplaces I go. The most heartbreaking funeral I've ever attended. All those older men, wiser men, were imploring the youth who were present. We have to make changes in our neighborhood. The drug use, the violence has to stop. So, so many who need to know God as a friend will heal the hurts that they've experienced. And stop the cycle of abuse, and violence that happens so much and is seemingly multiplying. We live in a city in a parish filled with thousands who are only religious, proud of their church and church attendance, but arrogant and unloving and uncaring. They can proudly spout their theological positions, but they like intimacy with God as a friend. And by God's grace, we are here, sent to this city this parish, this region, to share the gospel of friendship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we can also be those people, right? We're not exempt. We can be so broken and hurt, we hurt others. We can be so theologically impressive and spiritually blessed but unloving. But by His grace, He's working in us, changing us and growing us in affection for Him and intimacy and friendship. And it's going, and then he sends us out to those who need him and need his friendship. And guys, it's going to take incredible sacrifice and incredible risk to get this gospel to everyone in our region who needs the friendship of God. It's not easy. It's not just going to be dumped in our lap. It's not going to be cozy or comfortable. It's not going to demand a lot from us. It's going to demand a lot. It's going to take incredible risk and sacrifice to see more people in our parish become friends with God through Jesus. We're going to have to invest time, energy, resources. We're going to have to risk and sacrifice to share the gospel with people. Open our mouth and actually tell them about Jesus. Because again, just nice people into heaven. And we're going to be rejected and we're going to be pushed away and we're going to be hurt and we're going to be taken advantage of and we're going to be mocked and we're going to fail. But by His grace we will also succeed. Because Jesus never stops building his church. And our area is filled with thousands of people who need true, genuine friendship with God through Jesus. Here in among in the Oak Cliff part of Dallas, Nairobi, Kenya, among the Chinese people, the Turkish Muslims in Berlin, among the Wachi people in Indonesia, all those places here locally and everywhere in between. Because we have real faith and real friendship with God, we go, we help those who go. If you're here today and you don't feel like I have real, genuine relationship and friendship with God through His Son, Jesus, there's no better place to be. This room is filled with people who would love to tell you how you can know God is your friend. And Jesus as your Savior and King. Please don't be here today Like coming to someone, me, anyone, you see on stage to stay anymore. Like, look around the room. then love to walk you through how you can know Jesus Jesus as your Savior and as your friend. That's what we are about. We now want to share in this meal together that points our hearts and minds to Jesus. We do this every single week because we need these reminders every single week about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So it's a very old meal, but we we share with it, we we share it with each other in in a way that's Uh, joyful and celebratory but also somber, right? We are so sinful, Jesus had to die. That's very sombre. This perfect man of God, the God man, was nailed to the cross for sins. For your sins. It's heartbreaking. Punished, beaten, cursed, spit on, beard ripped out, crown of wounds in his head, mocked, all of that happened, not because he did anything wrong, but he was suffering for us. But it's also celebratory because not only are so simple Jesus had to die, we are so loved Jesus was glad to die. He did not hold back and demonstrating his love for his people. He poured it all out willingly, lovingly, for us to be brought into his family. So this meal is for baptized repentant believers, and that's really important that you get this. Like baptized, you're professing faith in Jesus. You declared, I'm a Christian. I'm in the camp. I'm with God's people. That's what baptism is all about. I have been buried in Christ Jesus, raised to walk in the newness of life, and repentant. So you're not coming up here hiding sin, harboring sin, trying to get away with sin. You're coming up here saying, "I hate sin. I don't want sin to have any more power in my life. I want to be done with it. And I'm trusting Jesus has done that. He saved me from the penalty of sin." He's saving me from the power of sin and one day He will save me from the presence of sin. So with that heart, with that spirit, if that's you, then come. Even if it's your first time to ever do it, you're not even a Christian, but today you want to be a Christian. Come. Share in the field if that's your heart. But if that's not your heart, please don't come. It's, It's not for you. Until the spirit brings you to this place of repentance, finding joy in Jesus, seeing that your sins. To be repented of not saved. So I want to give you a few moments to reflect and think about where you're at in your relationship with God. And when you're ready, if you feel like, okay, I can fully embrace the reality of Jesus. He's not Savior. He's covered my sins. And come and receive the, the bread and the cup and return to your seats and we'll take this meal.